Welcome back to the Moon Tower Business Podcast. This is Joseph O'Bell, your host, and we are speaking today to uh, Patty Rossman. She's one of the founders of Precision Biopharma. Patty, how are you doing today? I'm good, Joseph. Thank you. Hey, Patty. Thanks for, thanks for being here. We also have Ben Murray, our co-host, and we're going to jump right into it. Uh, Patty, tell us about uh, Precision Biopharma. Precision Biopharma was started um, a month and a half ago uh, for the direct uh, mission of repurposing an already approved drug, FDA approved drug, to treat uh, moderate to severe COVID-19 patients. Um, This drug was... uh, we went through a lot of drugs, uh, looking at profiles, uh, mechanisms of action, and we chose this one in particular. And we chose one that's already FDA approved, so the the uh, cycle for approval for COVID nineteen will be much shorter. Awesome. Great. We're gonna we're gonna get into the weeds on that uh, in just a little bit. But before we do that, I, I'd like to go step back and kind of talk about your your career. I know you have uh, some experience in the life sciences field. Um, and I'd like to just kind of walk us through uh, your, your past experiences. Sure. Uh, well, I wear many hats, Joseph, as, as uh, you probably know. Um, I've had 25-plus uh, years of experience in life sciences. Uh, the last 15 years, I have uh, been a consultant to uh, pharmaceuticals and medical device companies, both large and small. Um, And so I've learned a lot of different uh, things about the industry uh, that I share with other clients. Um, I love that. Um, I started Globio, which is uh, my own consulting company, 11 years ago. Um, We're not very big. Uh, We have 12 people, um, 12 employees, but we... uh, we span a big, uh, a big scope from quality assurance to regulatory to uh, electronic data management, um, et cetera. Uh, during that, <clears throat> the time that I've been a consultant, um, I noticed too that sometimes I was the only woman in the room when I would meet with upper management um, of pharmaceutical or medical device companies or other life science companies. So I started thinking about why that was, uh, and I educated myself, and eventually um, I formed a Life Science Women's Conference and Life Science Women's Network. Um, so my career has spanned uh, these multiple um, hats that I wear. Um, I have worked for big corporations. I've worked for Abbott. Um, I've worked for Daughters of Charity um, in Seton Medical Center. I've worked for um, the American Red Cross uh, biopharmaceutical division, um, but I prefer working with moderate, moderate uh, medium sized to small companies, and I particularly love um, to work with startups. I, I've worked with a lot of different startups and um, been instrumental in getting them to a point where they could either be sold or get product on the market and grow. 
Can you, can you, you talk know, a little bit? Go ahead. Uh, yeah, Patty, it's Ben. Um, you know, I've been in the uh, CRO or clinical research organization world pretty much my whole career. So, you know, I, I kind of understand a lot of what's going on. And it is funny that how you talk about, you know, when you're meeting with upper management, it's, you know, more male predominant. And I've gone, you know, from the, the coordinator world up to the manager world. And it is amazing how that is, you know, in the coordinator and the, the uh, CRO or the monitoring world, you know, it's a lot of nurses. And so sometimes you get that feedback that nurses are always female, but it seemed like a lot when I was with the, the coordinators and as a, a monitor, you know, you it's predominantly female, it seems like. It's getting more back and forth now, but it's just amazing how that is. Um, what I wanted to ask about working with startups and the smaller companies uh, since you are a consultant, do you feel like you're, they're relying on you more to almost do the work for them because they don't know how to handle it and work on that? Or do you kind of step back and really have them, you know, guide them on what they're supposed to be doing? Um, before I answer that question, I, I wanted to comment on your CRO um, example. It, it's amazing to me that a lot of the women that work, a lot of women work in a CRO world, like you said, yeah. uh, in, in positions of extreme responsibility. Oh, and yeah. yet the executives are men. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's, that's very stark. Um, interesting. It's interesting little statistic. Yeah. So as far as whether we um, as a group uh, help startups and, and smaller companies by actually doing the work for them or helping them as they do the work. It depends on the startup. It depends on um, the small company. Some of them are just in such fast mode that they just want us to do it. Yeah. Just do it, you know, give it to us and we'll implement it, but just do it, develop it, train us, and then let's go. Um, others are a little bit more, uh, hands-on in that they want to have a, a stake in the development of, of whatever we're doing, whatever project we're doing, because they want to learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and they want to be able to maintain it after we leave. So it, it, it depends really on uh, what, what we're talking about. Now, most startups, if, if they're started by someone who hasn't done this before, who hasn't taken a a life science company to market, they really do not know what to do. So we have to start with the basics yeah. uh, for them and just train them. Um, and we always advise them to have an entrepreneur on their, on their advisory board um, to help them know what's, what's in store business wise, as well as um, science regulatory quality wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is without, you know, completely, I know that the point of our podcast is business entrepreneurship. And I know you and I could talk for hours about clinical research and the regulatory behind it and all that kind of stuff. But I did want to mention that you're, uh, I think you said the, uh, the, the Life Science Women Conference uh, that you're involved with. That, that's amazing. I, I think that's great. I always see that. And, I, and you know, I think that is very important for, for women to, you know, uh, connect and, and work together with that. And I, for me, 
it's, it, I don't want to sound sexist. And every time you say something like that, you go that route, but I wish I could be a part of it just to be the fly on the wall. Cause there are amazingly smart women out there. My managers are always women. I always rely on them for their advice. And I think, you know, if CEOs could listen more to, uh, their whole general population would be great. And I would love to hear the great information that comes out of these conferences. Uh, unfortunately, I'm a male and will probably would not be able to be invited, but I, I think that is amazing. And I think that's awesome that you're part of that and that you co-found and started that up. Ben, you are most definitely invited to the conference. That's great. Um, we're, we're very male friendly. Okay. Uh, we are female oriented, but uh, we understand that someone above us in these companies is going to have to reach down and help. Yeah. Um, and most times that's going to be a man. Um, it's unfortunate, but that's the way it is right now. Mm -hmm. But our conference is, um, it, it is life science um, industry. And it's not just one particular function in life science. So we have, executives, we have HR people, we have the finance people, we have the legal people, we have the scientists, we have the technicians in the lab, we have the manufacturing folks, we have the clinical trials folks, uh, loading dock, uh, delivery, what everybody. Awesome. And the reason we, we include all of these different women is because we realize that in order to um, move up in a company, or in order to become a business owner, to, to take um, an idea and become an entrepreneur, you have to have all these different functions helping you. Um, mm -hmm. Just like we have to have men helping us. Um, because if, if let's say that you have a great idea and the only people that you know uh, are scientists in a lab, you're not gonna be able to know how to take that idea and make a business out of it. And yeah. that's, um, that's something that we teach at the conference. We, we introduce women who do have ideas and have that entrepreneurial spirit, how to reach out and build a business, how to find funding. We have a funding forum there. Um, we have VCs and angel investors there um, that will guide and we don't have a pitch competition per se. Uh, it, it's more educational, more guidance related. But uh, some of the VCs that have, that have come uh, have met people that they believe in and that they've talked to about funding, uh, maybe not at the current stage, but they, they've helped them determine what it is they need to do to get to the point to get funded. And awesome. as you probably know, um, in life sciences at least, VC capital only 3% of it goes to women-owned companies, 3%. Oh, wow. And the success rate of those companies is huge. I don't remember the, the numbers, but the women startups have a much higher percentage of success than do male-led startups, um, even though we get less money. And, and therefore, a lot of women have learned how to bootstrap. Um, and we, we talk about that too, how to do that. Uh, I've done, I've built uh, three companies now, uh, bootstrap all the way. Um, awesome. And uh, it's definitely possible. Uh, it's definitely a, a, a pathway forward for many women. Um, 
but it would be nice to be able to get venture capital as well. Yeah. Is this conference um, typically in Austin and, and, the, and the, the women that, that attend, are they kind of from all over or, or what's the network look like? Um, it, it started in Austin um, because I live in Austin. Um, my partner lives in Tampa and my partner is a man, by the way, um, who has experience uh, with events and the women's market um, in sales and marketing. I, I'm a scientist, I'm a nerd, a businesswoman, but I had no experience with conferences. So I needed a partner who could compliment me um, in that way. So the first one was in Austin. The second one was last this year in Tampa. Um, and the third one, the next one's gonna be in Tampa as well. Uh, Tampa is a very woman-friendly city, uh, woman-business-friendly city. Um, and uh, we had a, a great turnout there and a lot of, uh, a lot of young women in high school, um, we, we were able to sponsor them to come to the conference and uh, got to know some of the teachers that support them. And uh, so the next conference is gonna be next May, um, hopefully in person. Um, it's going to be at the University of South Florida. Uh, so we'll be on a campus. Um, but we are, of course, making alternative plans for virtual if we have to. Um, the network is, and uh, for who, who comes, um, we had attendees from all over the country. Um, the network we started three weeks ago. And we started the network because normally between conferences, we have uh, happy hours and meetups and lunches and in-person events uh, so that our members can stay connected. Um, we started the network because we couldn't do that. And our goal is to have at least two members in every state by Christmas. Um, so far we have six states. Um, and by next uh, May, when our conference is, we will hope to have international members as well. Um, so we're building that. We just started, like I said, three weeks ago. Uh, we have um, connect calls, we call them connect calls, every two weeks um, for members. And we discuss things like, we, we, dis we actually uh, built a guideline to reopening a life science company during a pandemic. Um, we talk about issues like uh, women that have to work, single mothers especially, that have to work from home with toddlers um, at their feet. Um, we talk about um, how to stay safe when you do return to work, how to keep your, your um, folks safe. And we also talk about self-care for women. Um, because women are usually caregivers and they don't take care of themselves. And during this time, we absolutely have to do that in order to take care of business and to take care of everybody else that we need to take care of. So it, it's a very collegial, I, I don't know if you, um, you men have had this experience, but the experience that we have at the conference is so different than it is with a mixed gender crowd. And we, we do have men at the conference. Most of them are exhibitors, um, but we also have a few men uh, speakers and we have a few men attendees. But 
um, my experience has always been if you have a mixed gender crowd, for instance, you'll have a, a group of people standing in a circle, maybe around a cocktail tell, um, heights table talking. And if you try to come up as a woman, if you walk up and try to join the conversation, they just ignore you. With women at the conference, no matter who they were, if, if we had the same scenario and a bunch of women were standing around um, talking and another woman came up to the, to the group, uh, the circle would open and that woman could come in and people would say, hey, you know, who are you? And um, it's just a totally different atmosphere. And that, that carries over to doing business together too. It's the same thing when it comes to business collaboration. Um, we've had women who are sole proprietors meet each other at the conference and they complement each other. So they formed a business together. Um, awesome. Those kinds of deals are just going on all the time. That's great. And I, that, that's an awesome organization. I hope it, it grows uh, quickly and grows, grows big. Thank you. Yeah. So you're also, you're also a member of the American Association of Precision Medicine. Is that right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so that's an organization that's based in, in California. Um, and the CEO of um, Precision Biopharma is actually the uh, CEO of AAPM. So uh, Precision Medicine, um, as you may or may not know, is um, treating patients based on their particular needs, whether it be their environment or their genomics, um, their genetics, um, their underlying conditions. It's not one size fits all. It's actually targeted personalized medicine. Um, and that's what this organization is all about. Um, they started <clears throat> really focusing on COVID-19 and uh, Precision Biopharma actually grew out of that organization, uh, not as a particular part of that organization, but because the founders were working together on COVID um, responses. Uh, we met each other and we decided to form this business and um, try to bring this, this drug to market that has so much promise. Switching gears into, basically into, into the, the precision biopharma now, um, you talked a little bit about kind of how that got started, but uh, how did the, who discovered this originally approved FDA drug and how it, and who came up with the concept that, hey, this could help treat COVID-19 patients? Um, well, as you know, or you may not know, but um, there are many, many uh, FDA approved drugs that are being repurposed. Um, and, and there's, I think over, uh, uh, I want to say 150 clinical trials going on in the US right now uh, for repurposed drugs to uh, either treat or prevent COVID-19. Um, some of those are further along the path than others. Um, but what we, we did is we looked at the mechanisms um, that cause the uh, critical need in COVID-19 patients for ventilators um, and for other kinds of respiratory support, ox uh, oxygen support. And we, we looked at those mechanisms. There, 
they're basically about four mechanisms. Uh, we first, when we first um, started with the COVID-19 pandemic, we thought it was a disease of uh, the respiratory system. But as we got more and more into it, we, did, we learned that uh, there's that, there's that viral component where uh, the virus attacks the respiratory system, but there's also inflammation that uh, comes about and starts this cytok cytokine storm, as it's called. Um, there's a thrombosis that happens, so people get uh, clots and strokes and um, their coagulation system becomes uh, unstable. So we looked at lots and lots of, of uh, FDA-approved drugs, and this particular candidate um, stood out, way out, because it has four mechanisms um, that it matches the four mechanisms that cause the hard, um, the very severity of COVID-19 and the death that sometimes that leads to. So this drug has the antiviral. Um, in the laboratory, the antiviral activity is uh, greater than remdesivir, which is um, awesome. one of the authorized treatments for the mm -hmm. drug for the disease. Uh, it also has anti-inflammatory properties and it has anti-thrombotic properties. Um, and it has a few other even uh, more subtle properties that we believe uh, may help in the disease. So we're just dying to get it into patients um, with a clinical trial. Um, and it was a no-brainer when we found this drug and we saw how much research had been done on it. Um, we were like, oh, this is the one. Can you, can you say what the drug is? I cannot. I'm sorry. Okay. And then, so that kind of led to my thought. Um, when you're looking at this, this list of drugs and looking at the different uh, capabilities of them, um, how, what has the experience been with the company that maybe owns the rights to this drug uh, if it's not your company and, and how the process you're going through for that? Well, we've actually licensed it um, and we may purchase it. Um, okay. They, they have, uh, we are in negotiations with them to purchase the, the rights to the drug. Awesome. Um, but we have at least licensed it. Great. Can you talk about kind of what the initial purpose of that uh, previously approved FDA drug was, was meant to, to treat prior to this repurposing process? Um, it, I can't specifically, but it is uh, to treat an inflammatory response kind of disease. Okay. And when did, uh, did, when did you officially launch um, Precision Biopharma? Oh, I don't think there was an official launch. <laughs> 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 we just morphed right into it. <laughs> but uh, we've been working together for about two months now. Okay, and so you're you're we are launched yet. <laughs> so you're you're already incorporated and just and rolling. Okay, um, can you talk about uh, the team you have so far, the size of the team, um, uh, who's involved, the board members, etc. Sure, um, we have a team of about um, 
probably 20 people. Um, uh, like I said, um, Prasoon Mishra is our CEO. Uh, Lonnie Bookbinder is our chairman and Lonnie has experience with multiple startups uh, in this space. Um, our chief medical officer is Rick Pisano, Dr. Rick Pisano. Uh, and he has a great amount of experience as well. I didn't mention, but Prasoon is um, ex uh, Genentech and ex Roche. So he has a lot awesome. of interesting industry experience. Uh, we have a chief scientific officer, which is Dr. Bill Powell. Um, and then we have uh, just bunches of uh, other leaders. I, like I said, I'm the VP of quality assurance and regulatory. Um, we have Rupesh uh, Chaturvedi, who's the VP of research. And Rupesh is actually, he was instrumental in identifying this drug uh, and there was a university that he's familiar with that was working on some additional testing of this drug in vitro. And he's the one that, um, that has been working with this university um, to put, do additional uh, in vitro testing to really um, clarify the mechanisms of action uh, beyond what we already know, which is a lot. Um, we have uh, Deepak Asadani, who is a clinician um, at Stanford, um, and Shania Michaels, who is a VP of preclinical development. So she uh, does a lot of work on further identifying um, activity of the drug uh, in different kinds of laboratory settings. So she's just getting more and more interesting information about the drug. Um, Doug, um, Doug Thomas is a serial entrepreneur. He's very, he, he's a just genius. Uh, and he's working on a lot of the, um, the logistics. Like Ben, I'm sure you're aware of um, clinical research. There's a lot of logistics. So he's doing things like getting the placebo and getting the, packaging and it, he actually has the scientific data to analyze uh, to analyze the scientific expertise to analyze all the data that we do have. Uh, and so uh, I wanted to ask about that. So what is the next step for the drug? Are you going to start out? Is it like a, a phase three trial or a phase two, three trial since it's already been uh, looked at safety wise? Yeah, it's a, a 2B okay. uh, trial. We've uh, sent in our pre-IND package to the FDA and we're waiting for feedback. Uh, we, we're looking every day. It should come any, any day now um, because the FDA is very quick um, oh, yeah. on these types of, uh, of drugs um, these days. They, they really have a, a fast turnaround. And then can you uh, also kind of explain uh, the, the plan for the trial? You were saying that you were going to use a placebo. So um, is it uh, strictly one-to-one -one or is it, you know, do placebo and then also offer this drug after the fact for just the, the, the care factor of it or the safety factor? Uh, no, it, it's a single arm uh, placebo versus drug. 
So it'll be a one-to-one -one, uh, ratio randomization. It's a randomized, double-blind, uh, adaptive trial. So we will do an interim analysis after the first 100 patients to see if there is efficacy. If there is efficacy, um, we'll, depending on what the FDA does, um, we might go for emergency use authorization at that point. It just Phenomenal. depends on how stark the efficacy is. As you know, remdesivir is uh, under emergency use authorization. Mm -hmm. It's not an approved drug, but it is, it is authorized for use in this emergency. And those drugs that are um, EUA, they, they will only be EUA as long as the emergency goes on. So okay. if, all, if all of a sudden the pandemic got really mild, uh, they would have to get an IND. So we're going for an IND first and foremost. Yeah. Yeah. And that was some of the stuff in the news on uh, COVID-19 that I've heard about a lot of this uh, treatment originally and doing clinical trials, you know, with the fact that everybody was starting to stay home and a lot of places were closing down, you know, the options for patients to bring onto the study weren't as vast. But now that we're seeing it explode again in the U.S., I have no doubt that these trials will get the patients they need to see and hopefully do great things. How many patients are you looking to bring on to the study? Around 300 to start. Okay. And of course, if we get to phase three, then many more. Awesome. I have a question. I don't have experience with, with <laughs> uh, clinical trials like you and Ben might have, but given the nature of COVID-19 and the symptoms, um, are there extra precautions that need to be taken for uh, patients that are, are participating in these clinical trials to, to make sure everyone's safe and, or I guess for people also that are conducting the trials? Well, for our trial, we are looking at um, moderate to low severe uh, hospitalized patients. So we're doing it all in the hospital. Um, the precautions are already there. There are no additional precautions that we'll need to take um, that aren't already taken in the hospital. Um, we, we did look at, at uh, doing some uh, like mild to moderate patients, but most of those patients are staying at home now. Mm -hmm. um, we, we don't, at the first of the pandemic, those patients also were going to the hospital, but now they're, they're pretty much staying at home. Um, and so we're, we're simply comparing the drug to standard of care um, in hospitalized patients. So there are no additional uh, precautions that we need to take. Gotcha. So the, the placebo fact then would just be like standard of care treatment. It's not like we're giving them a sugar pill and, and comparing nothing to. No, we are actually. Okay. Them, uh, excipients. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, I did want to ask, I know I, I don't personally work on any of the clinical or the COVID-19 trials, but I do have uh, coworkers that are working on them. And as, as you've worked, uh, touched on, you know, the FDA is fast tracking a lot of these trials and I've been blown away at some of the results you've been hearing and seeing, you know, you see some of these trials that have hundreds of patients that are being done in a couple of months and, you know, the, it, 
I, my experience that it takes a year to get a trial up and running and they're getting these trials running in two weeks and getting patients on and a month later, you know, they're halfway through the trial. It's pretty mind blowing. So I wanted to see how that process too is going. Have you already started reaching out to sites and, and having, uh, you know, potential for this to start up as soon as you get approval from the FDA? Well, we're going to use a CRO. Okay. Um, so we have started thinking about sites. We, we think we're going to have some sites in India and some sites in the U.S. Um, we, India has a great population right now because they have a huge spike, it, mm-hmm. as, as does the U.S. Um, you know, Texas, we, we definitely have a, a big spike right now. Oh, yeah. Um, but we feel like there will be plenty of patients um, we're not too concerned about that but yes we do want to be as near ready to go as we can be um when the fda says go awesome that's great patty earlier you talked uh, i guess the beginning of the podcast about other uh, other companies and people that are are starting the process or, or like ben said kind of in the middle of the process of testing drugs to treat COVID 19 can you talk a little bit more about what your competition would look like for Precision Biopharma down the road? Well, I don't have a good feel for that, really. Um, I I know that there are many, many, many in trials, but as far as I know, there's no other drug that is in a trial that has these four mechanisms of of action and will will, uh, target the four complications uh, that come from COVID. so I, I don't know at this point. Uh, certainly it depends on uh, what, what the pandemic does. It depends on uh, how soon we have a vaccine, um, how, how many patients need to be treated throughout the next couple of years. And we're not gonna, if, if our drug shows uh, efficacy like we think it will, we'll also um, look at it for prevention. Um, which is another uh, thing that needs to be done, obviously. But that's a longer trial and that we didn't want to do that first because we know that there are people dying right now that need to be treated with a good therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one thing that I've kind of noticed that, you know, and and I'm speaking for my own opinion and my own experience and what I've seen, not on your company or anything like that. But, you know, people say, oh, big pharma, they're in it for the money. And, you know, some companies are in it for the money, but from what you see, and unfortunately it all comes through from the news, but it's it, my experience that I've seen, you know, these companies are really, truly, you know, it's not one company is coming up with one drug. There's multiple companies to try to treat multiple things, not just vaccines. You know, these people have this this issue and you have underlying issues that stick around long after COVID-19. And so it's, there's so much opportunity out there, but also all these companies aren't just saying, well, I have a competitor, so I'm going to stop this drug and just sit on it. You know, everybody is just looking to better the situation because they realize how in dire need we are for any kind of positive treatment to help out wherever we can. So that's, that's awesome. That's exactly right. And, and you think about production, even though uh, remdesivir has some positive effects, uh, we're running out of it. Um, it's yeah. in short supply right now. And to 
Uh, I know that some overseas companies have been uh, tapped to start producing more, but you know, you, you look at it, there's not going to be one drug that yeah. you have enough of to treat everybody. And you're absolutely right. I think um, it's a different situation now. You know, big pharma, I, I'm a big pharma advocate. I, mm -hmm. Because the people that work at big pharma that I know care tremendously about patients and they care about society and they care about health. Um, and as do the CEOs and the executives, um, there is a push, of course, from stockholders to make money. Yeah. Um, but the people that work there are, are not about that at all. Um, this is a different situation, too, in that you have so many startups that they're not, they're really not looking for opportunity as much as I know Precision Biofarm we're looking to make a difference. We're looking to say, yeah. we want to make money. Yeah, that would be great if we could be bought by a big pharmaceutical. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not our primary focus at all. That's awesome. Hattie, can you talk a little bit, just a, a quick brief summary of the FDA regulatory process for folks that don't have experience with that and don't really understand it? Sure. Normally, um, it takes about a year um, uh, back and forth with the FDA um, to get them to agree that you could do a clinical trial on your, your candidate drug, either a drug or a medical device. Uh, but let's talk drug. Um, and, and sometimes it's just um, waiting for responses back and forth. Um, the FDA has come through, come under a lot of criticism in the past for being slow uh, and being unresponsive. I think under um, the most recent leadership that has changed um, and COVID has changed it even more. So now uh, you submit your application to proceed to a clinical trial to the FDA and many times you hear back within a week or two um, and they'll say, and they'll work with you. They'll, they'll talk, they'll talk about how to change the, the trial design to get more patients or more to show more efficacy. Um, whereas in the past, the FDA wouldn't tell you anything. You would have to guess what they would like to see. And then you present that to them and they'll say yes or no. If they say no, then you go back to the drawing board and guess again, uh, what they might like to see. It's not like this now. Uh, there's a lot of collaboration between this, the companies and the FDA because the FDA wants to see these drugs too. Um, you know, all of, all of the scientists and all the healthcare and all the epidemiologists understand what a serious situation this is. Um, politics aside, we're we are not political at all. We, we see how uh, devastating this disease is and what it's done to the world. So um, the FDA, so then the FDA says, okay, you can go do a clinical trial. So they're watching very closely now to see, uh, number one, are you monitoring it for safety? Are you making sure that it's not harming patients? Uh, but number two, they're looking for an interim analysis. And what that is, is before the trial finishes, 
they're looking at you to look at the data and see what kind of uh, efficacy it has. So if, for instance, our drug shows that with the first 100 patients, um, let's say it shows that um, standard of care, uh, moderate uh, folks that just have some supplemental oxygen uh, get better and leave the hospital in five days, but with our drug, they get better and leave the hospital in two days, um, then they will, will adapt the trial, will change it based on those parameters to further narrow down um, what that effect is so that we can help more patients faster. So that's the adaptive part of the trial. Um, and the FDA is working with companies all throughout that process now. So as soon as you know something, um, especially if you know something positive, uh, they're gonna look at it and they're gonna help you um, and they're gonna guide you the fastest way to get it to the patients. Gotcha. Um, switching gears a little bit. Um, obviously, this is a global pandemic, but in terms of the market for precision biopharma, are you targeting the U.S.? Um, are you are you looking to go into other countries? And if you are trying to go into other countries, can you talk about the regulatory process you would have to deal with in other countries? Well, it's different in a, in every country, um, and certainly you have to have a whole regulatory department to do that. But yes, we are. Um, trying to think about getting approval in, in all countries so that it can be widely distributed throughout the world. Um, I think um, India is one place where we will have trials and so we'll probably target a regulatory approval in India um, as well as the U.S. to start with, but we'll, we'll go to any country that it makes sense um, to go to. Gotcha. So I've, I've worked a lot on uh, initially on like phase one and phase two trials. And those are kind of more so ran to safety wise in, in a specific country, not necessarily as globally. If you get approval for this drug in the U.S. and India, will other countries get on board with it looking at the data for that? Or do they feel that they would like to see testing in their country as well, too, before they approve it? Um. India is one of those that wants testing in their country, and that's why okay. we're doing it. Yeah. In India. There are some countries that do want testing in their country and some that do not uh, care. So we would, of course, um, go to those that, that don't have that requirement first. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that we think about, um, and it has been stated about this, drug this uh d disease is that it affects um at least the u.s black population and latina pa population uh more severely than it does the white population so we are already thinking about how we're going to get um those populations uh, into the clinical trials so that we can see what the effects are on people with different genomics, mm -hmm. uh, people with different of different races, um, so that everyone can benefit from the drug. Uh, we thought initially about having trials in Africa, and we may still do that if we can't 
um, recruit enough um, American, uh, African-American uh, subjects into the trials. So that's something that's really, we're really concerned about. Right on. Yeah. One, one thing going back to uh, when you were talking about FDA approval and reviewing um, one thing I wanted to touch on, it was just, you know, a lot of our guests we've talked to is just how they've adapted to COVID-19 and, you know, a, a lot of companies find ways to tweak their business model and, and it works really well for them. And some companies, unfortunately, we haven't talked to them, but they have not been able to figure out how to work through that. And you see that with the FDA, not even just for the COVID-19 trials, but even on the trials that I work on, I can see where, you know, they're, it, it's not necessarily that they're more lenient. You're still documenting as much as you can about safety, but there's exceptions because you don't want to have these people in big groups that are that sick. So you can make exceptions to the protocol as long as it's documented. And so my thought behind that is just to see how this makes the FDA evolve down the line to normal trials and, and maybe it's for the better and they realize, well, we can get these trials through quicker without waiting till we get 300 patients on, you know, if there's safety before or if we tweak something here, you know, then maybe we can get them approved. And ultimately that's good for patients and also that's good for the, the shareholders, the stockholders for business because trials are going to be a lot less cheap or a lot less expensive that way. So I, I'm intrigued to see in the future, you know, you we won't see this for at least a year, probably five years from now when everything settles down and sites start opening up more and, and trials start kind of getting back into the swing of things. If the FDA continues to, to tweak the way they, they uh, kind of regulate trials. So I, I'm really intrigued on that. Yeah, I am too. And I'm very hopeful. I think we've learned uh, one big lesson and that is that we do a lot of things that aren't necessary. Yeah. Um, we require a lot of things that are not necessary or have very little value. Um, and I also think that um, telehealth uh, and telemedicine is going to play a huge role in clinical research in the future. Um, now that we're used to it, we know it works, we know it's fine, we know there's no risk um, or very little risk. I think we're going to see that aspect of things really cut down on time yeah. and expense uh, of trials. Yeah, I, I have a little experience in my trials with the telehealth, but personally, what I've noticed is that I've had to bring my dog to the vet multiple times because he's always got weird issues. And it's mind blowing. I bring the dog there. He gets out of the car. 15 minutes later, I'm gone. Normally, I'm there for an hour and a half. And all we're doing is, you know, a heartworm test. And it's just like, wh why, why haven't we been doing this before? Can I continue down this road where I drop him off, sit in my car and you bring him back to me and I don't have to wait for hours for the, the doctors to get around? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I do think that we've learned a lot of, of positive things. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, we talk about, and this is just my opinion, I, I'm not an epidemiologist, um, but it's my opinion that we're going to have a very mild flu season this year. Um, we talk about how bad it's going to be with the flu on top of the COVID-19, but I think we're going to have a very mild flu season because everybody that can is going to get vaccinated 
We're yeah. going to still wear masks. We're not going to shake hands. Mm-hmm. We're not be breathing on each other and coughing on each other. Um, so I think there's a lot of positives uh, that have come out of this. Um, but certainly the deaths that have come out of, out of it are uh, not positive. Yeah, I agree. And I didn't even think about that for the upcoming flu season. It's, you know, what they say about precautions for flu, you know, wash your hands, cover your mouth or sneeze into your elbow. And it's like, well, that's everything for COVID-19. If we're already doing that, then of course, you know, the flu's definitely, hopefully should not nearly be as bad as it has been in previous years. So that hopefully will be good. Good point. Right. Patty, um, are there any federal or state grants or financial assistance available for companies like Precision Biopharma that are working on a treatment for COVID-19? Um, not that I specifically know about. Um, there, there probably are uh, private um, financing opportunities, but I don't know of any specific government opportunities except the NIH has this large amount of money, but it's mostly going to vaccines. Um, I don't know of any going to therapeutics, but we have uh, approached the Bill Gates Foundation. They are quite interested in uh, providing uh, money for uh, treatments of COVID and vaccines. So um, we've gone down that road. So we'll see what, what happens with that. But we are definitely looking for funding. Um, absolutely. Um, we're looking for a first round of $5 million to get us through clinical trials. Um, and then the second round of uh, $5 million. Sounds good. And uh, what does your cap table generally look like right now? Do you have some, uh, is it just kind of self-funded right now? Do you have any, any uh, investors in it so far? Just the founders. Gotcha. And, Have you looked uh, to partner with any uh, other pharma companies to get support? Uh, we have. Uh, we started down that path, and then we decided that things were too uh, fluid right now to do that. Okay. Is uh, do you think is is there other other purposes you could use this once once you uh, finalize the process and, and get to market? Are there other um, diseases or different things that you could use uh, this FDA approved drug for? And do you see any other, uh, under, any other types of uh, medicine you, that you plan to kind of work on in the future with, with this company? Yes, um, we do have some other things in the pipeline. Um, they're not real solidified right now, so I can't really talk about them specifically, but we do have other things in the pipeline, other drugs. Um, with the FDA approval, um, the FDA only approval only approves one indication at a time. So uh, it would be to combat one disease or to combat uh, one disease in adults. Um, so in order to use the drug on other diseases, just like we're doing now, we would have to show that it has efficacy in that disease. But certainly um, that's a possibility for us to, to do in the future. Gotcha. What is kind of, we're getting close to the end of the time here, but what can you kind of talk about what the fundraising process looks like now during a pandemic? You know, typically you would go and, and pitch to a VC or an angel group, 
in person and a lot of people are not doing that right now. It's, it's virtual for the most part. Can you talk about your experience and kind of what, how that, what that looks like right now? That's exactly how it looks. It's virtual. Um, we, we actually uh, ran into some folks at some conferences, virtual conferences um, recently, um, we pitched to them. We pitched to, I think, three, three, uh, firms, um, and a few angels, um, as well, but, uh, it, it looks virtual. <laughs> it's the same process, but virtual. And do you think, do you think, uh, investors are more reluctant to, to pull the trigger on investment when, when they can't see somebody face to face, or is that just kind of no, I don't think that's it, but I, I do think that they have, they're getting a lot thrown at them um, because there's a lot of opportunities out there uh, and they're, you know, they're trying to pick and choose what best fits in their portfolio. And I think sometimes there's, there's so many unknowns, you know, there's even unknowns with the disease. The disease has morphed so much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it started out with um, elderly patients and then it went to the young folks and now it's in kids and now it's kind of going back up the, the age chart. Um, it started out respiratory and now it's uh, lots of other um, complications. So this disease won't sit still for us to really combat it. It's uh, definitely... Um, a stealth enemy. And I think that has, has investors concerned as well, that there's a moving target. Um, and there, there is risk associated with that. Understood. In closing here, a uh, question I ask uh, all guests uh, to, to finish out the podcast. What is your favorite restaurant in Austin, Texas? Anyone that has takeout. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. I, Agreed. I think that they're all pretty much closed up again as far as uh, in, in uh, house dining. But I like Jack Allen's. That's oh. go to in normal times. Awesome. That's a good place. Patty Rossman, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Founder of uh, Precision Biopharma. Uh, we're very excited about what, what you're working on and we wish you the best of luck. Uh, for investors listening out there, please Please check them out and consider uh, giving them an investment so they can get down down the road and, and, and have a treatment for COVID-19. Uh, Patty, thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you, Patty. It was great talking with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to our episode with Patty Rossman as we talked about our company, Precision Biopharma, and the treatment they're working on for COVID-19 patients. Stay tuned next week as we talk to the CEO of Ridershare, an option for motorcycle riders to rent a bike directly from an owner. A very cool concept. If you've liked what you've heard so far, please consider subscribing and giving us a good review. As always, take care and stay healthy.